The White House confirmed senior U.S. diplomats will boycott February's Winter Olympics in Beijing. American athletes will still participate, but the move is a high-profile protest over China's human rights record. It's just a year until the Football World Cup kicks off in Qatar. Allegations of vote buying and human rights abuses have marred the run-up to the competition. Some fans are even threatening a boycott, but Qatar says it deserves to host the cup. FIFA and UEFA have just released a joint statement confirming that Russia are being banned from football. That means the Russian national team and also all Russian clubs. From the Winter Olympics in China to the World Cup in Qatar, 2022 has a full calendar year of high-stakes sporting events. But the stakes are even higher when you look at the host country's human rights records. Authoritarian leaders have used the power of sports to improve a country's public image for a long time. It's a phenomenon called sports washing. After the break, we'll look at the impact of sports washing on a country's reputation. And we'll also discuss how it's being used as a tool in Russia's war against Ukraine. I'm John Quillen Hill, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. A reminder, to have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us, at 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. We're discussing the impact of sports washing. Joining us now is Kareem Zidane. He's an investigative journalist covering the intersection of sports and politics. He writes for outlets like The Guardian and The New York Times. Kareem, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Also with us, Andrea Florence. She's the acting director of the Sports and Rights Alliance. It's a partnership of nine nonprofit organizations, including Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and the Committee to Protect Journalists. Hi, Andrea. Hi, John Glenn. Thank you so much for having us. Kareem, let's start with you. How do you define the term sports washing? Well, that's a great question, John Glenn. Honestly, I'd say that sports washing, first of all, is a term that was coined by Amnesty International in 2018. And it was coined to describe how authoritarian regimes use sports to manipulate international, international perception and to cleanse their human rights atrocities at the same time. Now, this term may be new, but the process isn't. Now, states as far back as the ancient Egyptians 
who used to stage wrestling matches against Nubia to showcase Pharaoh's superiority. It's existed for a very long time. We can go back and look at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin as well, which is where um, Hitler's Nazi party attempted to emphasize superiority of the Aryan race. But in modern times, sports washing has become a lot more complex, let's say. It's much more of a soft power strategy now. It is used as a multi-layered uh, process that can achieve a wide range of uh, of uh, goals rather than a single aim at this point. So, like, for example, you've got countries like Russia and China using it as a form of diplomacy and a way to alter any negative perception on international stage. But you have countries like Saudi Arabia who are using it to distract from human rights abuses, as well as wars in places like Yemen. So there are really examples that are seamless, seemingly never-ending at this point. So... In your Guardian piece from earlier this year, you suggested that 2022 could be the year of sports washing. Where else have we seen this phenomenon used? You gave us a lot of examples. Are there any others? Well, I mean, the reason I was saying 2020, 2022 in particular was going to be a uh, sports washing year is because it was bookended by <laughs> the Beijing Olympics. And at the end of the year, we're going to have the Qatar World Cup. Now, there's plenty of other sports washing that takes place throughout the year in places like Saudi Arabia. We had uh, an example with Rwanda last year with the, the, the NBA. There are countless examples. I mean, right now you've got Bahrain is about to host the Formula One Grand Prix again. Uh, Saudi Arabia hosts the Formula One Grand Prix as well. There are really countless examples all over the place. But what was what was very significant about 2022 is the fact that two of the major sporting events of the world, global events of extreme significance, such as the Olympic Games and the World Cup, both being held in authoritarian regimes, one at the start of the year, one at the end of the year. This is something we have not seen before. And it's very significant. And the fact that very few people are really emphasizing this goes to show you how successful sports washing has been. Andrea, you're joining us from Rio de Janeiro, and that's where the 2014 World Cup was and also the 2016 Olympic Summer Games. How did you see this phenomenon firsthand as a way to distract from human rights violations that happened there? Um, so here in Brazil, we saw a phenomenon that was uh, hosting two mega sporting events in a very short period of time. Um, of course, uh, our partners were closely tracking the very different human rights violations before, during and after those events. We saw entire communities being forcibly removed without any prior compensation or knowledge or warning. We saw increased uh, police violence due to the security around those events. We also saw how uh, Rio and Brazil were more militarized as well because of those events and the, the entire security force um, had a big impact. But I also wanted to highlight that in terms of sports washing, we would not see that happening, what we saw in Rio uh, and in Brazil because of the World Cup, if we had human rights as part of the bid criteria and host city selection process. The same is true for the events happening this year. If sports governing bodies would have embedded human rights earlier, and included human rights as part of the awarding of the games, we would not be watching uh, the games or the World Cup going to countries that are, for instance, committing crimes against humanity or that are silencing their own athletes when they come forward. 
Are, are we seeing that criteria change? So we saw some change since 2017. FIFA made important progress following, of course, uh, big campaigns and advocacy work from civil society and trade unions. So FIFA, for instance, adopted Article 3 in their statutes, uh, which includes human rights criteria, and they've also adopted a human rights policy. Um, now the big challenge when it comes to FIFA is the implementation. So how can we make sure that these criteria are used in all of the selection processes? And this cannot be done on an on-off basis. It needs to be systemic. We're also, another challenge is around monitoring and remedy. So how can we make sure that human rights impacts around these events are actually monitored and most importantly remedied in case violations happen. Um, when it comes to the Olympic Committee in 2017, they announced the inclusion of human rights criteria for the first time in the host city contract for the 2024 and 2028 Olympic Games. Then later on, we saw in 2019 an independent review into the IOC's human rights obligations, which was published at the end of 2020. But since this report came out, we have not seen a human rights policy or a human rights high-level commitment by the International Olympic Committee. And that's part of the asks from the Sport and Rights Alliance uh, at following the Winter Olympic Games. So, Kareem, Russian President Vladimir Putin successfully lobbied to host the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi and the 2018 World Cup. Here's Putin speaking in a welcome address back in 2018. I welcome football supporters and the best football teams on the planet. All those who have already come to Russia and those who are getting ready to take part in the greatest international event, the FIFA World Cup. That's Russian President Vladimir Putin. Karim, you had friends that attended the World Cup. How did they think of Russia after they went to the Games? So I was back home in, in Egypt uh, at the time of the World Cup and friends of mine had just returned. And one of the things that really I heard everyone say was that how much they enjoyed being in Russia and how much they loved Russia and how much it did not match the perception that they were given by the West in media, etc., etc. Now, this is extremely calculated. I'd like to preface this by saying I've been to Russia about 14 times and I absolutely loved vis visiting Russia and, and exploring the, the country far and beyond. But of course, what we're seeing here is an example of a very subliminal style of propaganda. Because what Putin did was he, I mean, he culled stray animals, he made sure he, he uh, exploited and uh, threatened any of the hooligans and football fans who were known for causing trouble in Russia. He clamped down very hard. He militarized the country and clamped down very hard so that he could give the impression that Russia had improved and had changed in time for the World Cup, just so that people who are visiting have this perception and then go back home and spread that perception of Russia around the world. So it's really a very smart concept because it does work. You, it shows you how targeting sports fans who are there simply to an, enjoy an event are very likely to leave satisfied and maintain that sort of loyalty to you thereafter. And that's what happened here with Russia. A lot of people who did not know any better, who did not know that there was a political layer to this, are coming back saying, well, the West was all wrong about Russia. And Putin couldn't ask for anything better than that, honestly. Let's let's dig a little more into Putin here. How has he used sports to improve 
not just his image on the global stage, but distract Russians, people in Russia, from the politics at home? Well, he's been doing this since since he's, he's gotten elected. I mean, I'm sure you and everyone else has seen pictures of him, you know, shirtless and, and riding a horse or, uh, or you know, uh, going down uh, in the ocean and all sorts of things like that, these sort of uh, masculine and macho images of him. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason he spreads this kind of propaganda is actually... Uh, quite effective. He's telling his own population that I am a healthy, strong leader. And people buy into that and people believe it. When I was in Russia, people would say the same thing. They say, well, you know, at least Putin trains in, in martial arts. At least he's a judo black belt. I mean, we're talking about somebody who actually released an instructional video on judo at one point. That's how much he was, uh, how much he, he has at least a passion for the sport and wanted to present that to his people. Now, let's take it a step further with the World Cup. During the World Cup, what people don't know is that Putin actually raised the age of retirement, the pension age in Russia during the actual games. But because Russia was doing so well in the World Cup and because it was such a unique experience for Russians, they completely uh, did not notice that this was happening until afterwards. Despite some of the reporting going on at the time warning of this, most people had no clue what was happening. They were too busy celebrating on the streets and having a good time. And once the World Cup was over and the dust settled, that's when they realized, oh no, I'm going to have to work five more years now before I reach the age of retirement. Kareem, um, continue, continue telling us more about Putin in Russia around that time. Well, I mean, that, that, that's really uh, the key element here is that he's not just using sports as, as a tool to distract or to change international perception, but he's actually used it and weaponized it quite well as a piece of domestic propaganda as well. And it was very successful. For the most part, my experience in Russia between the, between the years 2014 and 2017, which was the time I was visiting Moscow and St. Petersburg frequently, that was the perception I had. I mean, people, I remember people not being satisfied with uh, the war in Crimea, not being happy that Putin had annexed Crimea because I had just arrived for the first time in Russia right after that. But apart from that, few people questioned Putin as a strong leader. And part of that perception of him being a strong leader is not just his successful military campaigns in places like Chechnya in 1999, Syria in 2015, etc. But it's also his use of sports. This is a man who really uh, surrounded himself by by celebrities to build this cult of personality. And the celebrities he surrounded himself by uh, might seem strange to Americans. It's people like Jean-Claude Van Damme, people like Steven Seagal. So we're talking about fight celebrities at the same time, known for their action movies. At one point, actually, Putin was attending this judo tournament, and he brought Steven Seagal in to act, and, and I stress the word act here, as his bodyguard, because he wanted to have this perception that he's friends with Steven Seagal, this big, this big guy who, I mean, he's a joke to us in the United States at this point, but in Russia, he's still taken seriously. Those movies from the Soviet era onwards were watched movies, and people enjoy Steven Seagal, and to them, he's an action star. So Putin rubbing shoulders with someone like that reflects on Putin as well. So these, these, this sort of subliminal propaganda is absolutely sports washing, and I stress the word subliminal here because that's what factors in, because most people are watching this, they're not going to disseminate this piece of information they would maybe an article or or something that or something that they're used to could potentially be disinformation in this case they're watching a sports event or something along those lines so mm-hmm. it's a lot more subconscious steve davis tweeted us not caring about a country's human rights abuses is not caring about athletes and humanity 
And Staten emailed us. The Olympics is particularly corrupt because countries use the games to, quote unquote, clean out neighborhoods of impoverished communities and building hugely expensive complexes. We heard from others of you. Hi, my name is Mike from New Hampshire, and I'm boycotting the next World Cup due to slavery used to build the stadiums. I've been a lifelong soccer fan. I follow all the football over in Europe, and I just can't bring myself to support an entity that's doing this openly, knowingly. You've had a lot of sponsors pull out, which I think kind of shows us how real this is. And for me, this is kind of the final nail in the coffin. Andrea, a report from The Guardian found that more than 6,500 migrant workers from across the world have died in the construction of World Cup facilities since Qatar was awarded the event in 2010. What steps has the country taken to protect its public image from those reports in the lead up to the World Cup? Um, So increasingly, fans are saying that they don't want to sit in stadiums that workers died to build and they don't want to buy clothes from or products that may have been made with forced labor. So it's really important to highlight that as global enterprises, uh, sports governing bodies, they do have an obligation to respect human rights and adopt human rights policies and, and ensure also that their businesses, business activities are not causing, contributing, or directly linked to negative human rights impacts. Um, in relation to the Qatar World Cup uh, specifically, we have seen some development. So Qatar has undertaken significant reforms in its labor laws, abolishing uh, the kafala system and reached uh, agreement at the ILO in 2017. But um, we are still finding reports uh, of around migrant workers uh, citing extreme heat Mm -hmm. and lack of protection. So there's still uh, movement and adoption that needs to be made by Qatar. We're discussing how countries and politicians use sports to enhance their public image. Remember, to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. We're exploring how countries use sports to improve their reputations both at home and abroad, despite records of human rights abuses. It's a term known as sports washing. We got this email from Nick who said, the English Premier League has a shameful record of welcoming millions of dollars to their top teams, Chelsea, Manchester City, and most recently Newcastle United, from owners from countries with appalling human rights records. Andrea, what can fans do about sports washing? Let's say your favorite team gets bought by an oligarch. What can you do knowing about those corrupt ties? Well, as we were saying before, fans, of course, they don't want to sit in stadiums that workers died to build. They don't want to see their clubs also 
um, lose track of their fan base and the higher purpose really for sports, which is to bring an authentic force for good, to show values of courage, of strength, of independence. Um, and when sports goes uh, far away from those values, of course, fans uh, also can stand up. Uh, they can show uh, their their sides through the matches or through social media. I think fans uh, have the potential to drive the change also within sports. Uh, they are the biggest component uh, along with athletes uh, that make up for sports and that provide also this platform uh, for global sports for being a uh, force for good. So, Kareem, speaking of fans, supporters of the Premier League team Chelsea are adamant to keep um, Roman Abramovich, the sanctioned Russian oligarch and the owner of the team. Why does a Russian oligarch with ties to President Vladimir Putin have such an unwavering base of support from these fans? Well, that's what you do when you buy a football club. It really is one of the most powerful uh, forms of sports washing because you buy the allegiance of the fans of that club. It's like having your own loyal army online to defend you. And that's what Roban Abramovich has and had because, I mean... Dating back to 2003, 2004, when all this started, him being the first billionaire with uh, state ties to actually purchase a football club and start this whole mess that we're in right now, he's had that support since then. Chelsea has been a very successful team, and those fans don't want that to change. They feel like they're being unjustly targeted. And by the way, to an extent, they are. Why is everyone targeting just Roman Abramovich, which, by the way, those sanctions are absolutely essential, but no one's targeting Sheikh Mansour, who owns, the, who owns Manchester City? What about the, uh, the public investment fund that owns uh, Newcastle United? I mean, if you're going for one, you should really be going for all of them, or else it's just hypocrisy at that point. So if we're going to be very active and proactive in banning Russia from sports, well, definitely the, the next biggest target should absolutely be Saudi Arabia, which is participating in its own humanitarian crisis in Yemen right now. Let's get into some of the numbers for some of the teams you just mentioned. So going back to Abramovich, um, he's reportedly trying to sell the team for $4 billion, and that is a lot of money. It's much more than he bought the franchise for in 2003, and that was 140 million euros. What do these oligarchs and leaders get out of these deals? Like, are they seen as as purely financial or is there more there? No, I think with Roman Abramovich, it was a way to cement his status as an oligarch in Russia as well. Abramovich and... and uh Others, like, he's not necessarily, he was never necessarily Putin's favorite. And Putin was really known throughout his reign and his multiple different presidencies for reshuffling the oligarchy in order for others around him not to cement too much power. And, uh, and that, was, that was a big focus for him. So he did do that. Any, for instance, any oligarchs that were 
uh, elevated during the, the reign of, of Prime Minister Medvedev when he was president were immediately uh, thrown out thereafter. Mm-hmm. So Abramovich, one of the key things he did in order to maintain his, influ- his sphere of influence was buying Chelsea. And now that in itself represented a fantastic form of sports washing for Russia. So Putin keeps him around and he becomes elevated in the status of influence in Russia and in those inner circles of oligarchy. Now the oligarchy in Russia can be overstated to an extent because as we're seeing with the current war right now, Putin doesn't act with a council in that sense. Putin Putin does not necessarily go to his oligarchy to determine what's going to happen in the world. Mm-hmm. But that is not to say that they don't have any influence whatsoever. And Roman, using his football club, managed to elevate himself beyond a wide variety of oligarchs other than the ones who own, you know, gas lines, etc., etc. There was Football really was one of the most exceptional ways to get, to get Putin's attention at the time. Stephanie in Oklahoma shared an interesting perspective. I've traveled with Olympic athletes and World Cup athletes for a period of eight years. I've been in 26 countries on six continents, two Olympics, one in Atlanta, Georgia, and the other in Sydney, Australia. I've also been to World Cups in both Czech Republic and in Hungary at that time. And I would just say I have somewhat mixed feelings on banning athletes from certain countries from competing. However, I do think we should at this time keep the hard line that we've been driving uh, with Russian athletes and athletes from Belarus. They should not be allowed to compete, nor should we be, they be hosting any events in those countries as well. No revenue for Russia, no athletic events, period, and no future Olympic plans either. I think it was a big mistake that they were allowed to host the Winter Olympics. That was an amazing opportunity for them to collect information on journalists and U.S. citizens and other citizens around the world to gain leverage. Thanks, Stephanie. And Stephanie raises a good point. There are very clear risks involved with bringing American athletes into authoritarian regimes. WNBA star Brittany Griner, who played in Russia during the offseason, is still detained by authorities for reportedly carrying hashish oil into the country. And we want to note that these reports are coming from the Russian government and haven't been verified. Kareem, how could Russia use Griner's safety as a political bargaining tool with the U.S.? It does feel like a bit of Cold War uh, mentality right now on that end. It is another form of uh, really using so- sports as a soft power strategy, isn't it? It's a form of diplomacy right here. And it can be a bit of ex- a bit exploitative. Like, we don't have enough information, enough details right now to be certain on, on, on all ends. What we are getting is, as you mentioned, reports from the Russian government right now. And that's very concerning in and of itself. What concerns me beyond that is the lack of attention this is getting. I understand it got a, a, a bit of reporting done in the New York Times, but in general, this has not caused the stir or the outrage that, let's say, Peng Shui's case did in, uh, in China with the, 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 the tennis athletes. So it's, it's uh, a bit surprising at the same time. Is it because there's just too much going on in the media cycle right now? I'm not 100% sure, but we haven't also seen any progression in this case. At the same time, Russia holding on to, to grind... Uh, you'd assume that they would have taken a step forward by now, but this is a very strange piece of uh, uh, diplomacy going on, to say the least, right now. And then, Andrea, if... We continue to withhold sporting opportunities from oppressive regimes. How far can we go before we're punishing the athletes? Well, that's a great question, and it's it's a concern, right? Uh, we don't want uh, individual athletes uh, to be punished for a government's uh, actions. Um, of course, we understand that as long as this 
um, is driving or supporting um, governments to to take action or to stop taking action in this case, then then it's it's acknowledged, right? Then it's it's understood, but. Um, it, there has to be a limit, of course. Uh, individual individuals uh, everywhere cannot be punished by by their government's uh, political decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Kareem, briefly, it it feels like as long as there are sort of these massive amounts of money being poured into sports, there's always going to be people who take advantage of it. Um, can we ever hope to not have to deal with those outside forces? <sighs> That's a that's a difficult question because I'm not 100% sure I have a positive or optimistic response for this. Unfortunately, we're seeing that snowball. It's actually getting worse. So we haven't plateaued. We're not saying that there's the same amount of money in sports now. We're actually seeing more money being poured in from more authoritarian regimes. And we're seeing sports organizations take that money without even the slightest concern or moral <laughs> dilemma involved in it. I mean, Saudi Arabia is a fantastic example. They have hosted some of the biggest boxing events of the past few years in Saudi Arabia. And no, none of those fighters have any concern with it. None of those boxing promoters had any concern with it. They regularly host, I think two times a year now, they host WWE events there now. Full-on propaganda showcases. You really have to watch one of these events to believe it, just to see how much propaganda actually takes place. The truth is... There is more money than ever before. More authoritarian regimes are realizing that this is an avenue for sports washing and and uh, for regime building in that sense. And they will continue to take advantage of it because honestly, there is very, very little stopping them right now. That was Kareem Zidane, an investigative journalist who's written for The Guardian and The New York Times. Andrea Florence is the acting director of the Sports Rights Alliance. Today's producer is Chris Castano. Barbangiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm John Glenn Hill. This is 1A.